This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We all know podcasts are only as good as the guests they feature, which means today's show is going to be 10 out of 10, 100% and a full glass. Envying someone else's green grass can be more tempting than a glazed jam donut. Often, it comes all too naturally to stare longingly at someone's life and wish you had achieved more. Today's guest candidly reveals that often it's the experience of failure that enables success. We'd love to welcome Nick Chang to the show today. After realising that the beauty industry was still relying on antiquated phone calls and paper journals to book appointments, Nick set out to revolutionise this industry. The solution was Honey, a beauty discovery and booking website. Since its inception in 2016, Honey has achieved soaring success and landed Nick on the coveted Forbes 30 Under 30 list. However, as Nick reveals, the success we see on the outside is often shaped by a few falls. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Nick about his path to Honey and how we can all learn to pick ourselves up and make lemonade. Let's take a listen. Nick. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast by the Peers Project. We're so excited to have you. Great, great. Yeah, it's great to be on here. Awesome. So, you know, you and I connected recently over LinkedIn, actually. And when I looked into you and all the awesome work you're doing at Honey, I knew I had to interview you and have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you being here today. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for reaching out. It was actually pretty exciting for me when you reached out I was like, and I looked into it. And yeah, it's what you guys are, are doing is pretty amazing. Oh, thanks so much. No, love it. Cool. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, again, uh, just like you said, uh, my name is Nick. Uh, I moved to Melbourne slash Australia about four years ago. And and for the past three years and a little bit, I've been working on my own startup called Honey. So, you know, we're pretty simply we're a wellness and beauty discovery platform. We also look after provide software on the business side. But on the consumer side, we basically help you find, search, discover, and then make a booking online with anyone, any of the businesses inside the wellness and beauty industry. Mm. Yeah. I love that. I think there's, it's so funny when I was reading your LinkedIn profile, yes, I did stalk you last night. Yeah. Um, I, 
You talked about how that gap wasn't filled, you know, how th- that the industry you're in, the beauty industry, there was they kind of just do everything by paper, they take bookings by paper and they don't really, they haven't really evolved. So tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, I just found that really interesting. Tell us a little bit about the problem that you're yeah, solving. absolutely. So I think if you look at industries really uh, from a very top-level perspective, the hotel industry, the airline industry, even the hospitality slash food industry, everything has been digitized and there's been a lot of technology, technology put in place that helps with the overall end-to-end process from a consumer and a customer point of view. So it's we're all used so used to, you know, when you want to book a, a hotel, you don't look, you know, you look online. Mm. Airlines, uh, you want to uh, go somewhere, you you look online. Same even with uh, with food now. There's Deliveroo, there's Uber Eats, there's Menulog has been around for uh, quite a while now, Delivery Hero, etc. Everything is online. So the problem that we found was that uh, we realized that within the wellness and beauty industry, they weren't as digitized as any as the other players in the other industries. So when someone would want to book a nail a nail appointment, a lash appointment, a hair appointment, or even try to get a, a booking at a yoga studio for a session, they would very often have to either call up online, and then sometimes when they search for these businesses online, they'd have trouble finding the right information. Even things like phone numbers, addresses, you know what they what their offers is, menu prices, etc. So we really thought that that was was a problem. Uh, me and my co-founder uh, were both, uh, you know, men in our early, when we started, it was our late 20s. Mm. So um, for us, it wasn't really a, uh, a, a problem at, at heart, but we <laughs> felt um, it was a problem for our wives. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes more sense now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Huh. And really, that's, that's how we landed on it. We looked around and we said, there is a problem here, and we think we, think we, could, we can solve it. Mm. Yeah. I love that. And I cannot wait to hear more about that. But before we do dive into deeper into you and your work, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Yep, yep. So I get that question quite a bit, um, considering my accent, (laughs) um, especially in Australia. And I think the the short answer to that is I, I grew up a little bit all over the place. Mm. So I was born in Taiwan, uh, in a in the capital city of Taiwan called Taipei. But when I was about six years old, I moved to over to the states on the east coast in a state called uh, Maryland. Mm. I spent about four years there, and then I went back to Taiwan. And then throughout from ten years old to about twenty, I had uh, maybe attended five to six different schools, all international schools across different countries slash cities. Yeah. So it was really based upon, um, yeah, I moved a lot because of my my dad's job. Yeah. And then maybe starting from around 14, it was, I was pretty much living by myself with my brother with no, none of my uh, parents being around. Yeah. Whoa. Wow. That's so different to, to so many other people's childhoods. Talk to us a little bit about, you said five to ten schools. Yeah. What, yeah. what was that like for you at that age, just trying to find yourself and, and just grow up? Yeah, it was actually not as hard as people th- uh, think it was. Mm. Yeah, I think for me uh, it was a... Uh, I think I was very used to the fact that I had to move around uh, a lot. And then I got very accustomed to, you know, going to new places, 
meeting new people, making friends, and then I guess developing those friendships into long-lasting ones. So even right now, I have friends all over the world who I've known for I would say 10, 15 years um, that we're we're still in contact um, to this very day. Um, so yeah, I think it's just something that I've grown very accustomed to. Yeah. Mm. So even even now, I find that I can't live uh, in a city for more than I would say three years <laughs> is my kind of maximum. After three years, I start getting antsy and I start thinking, okay, I need to move to another different city. I need mm. to I need to be moving. I need to fly somewhere else. Yeah. Wow. Well, look, you've made it. In Melbourne, here in Melbourne, I think you said four years. Yeah, I'm, Look, I'm at I four think years. We're now. winning. Oh, let's just put that one out there. No, I, I love that. I think it's so cool. I think it's so funny that you say you you, you do kind of get antsy. I, I, I'm not similar in that way, but I have travelled and, and lived in, in, in Shanghai and in France as well. Yeah. And similarly, I there are times where I'm like, nah, I need something new, a new inspiration, new people, a fresh dose of something. And so I think. That I really identify with. How do you, a question I've got for you is how do you maintain friendships and genuine relationships with people who you perhaps don't live in the same city as? Yeah, you know what? It's hard. I think what I do really well, though, is I keep, you know, through the so many different messaging platforms that we have now, I think it's, uh, for me, it's almost a little bit regimented. So, you know, every month or two or so, I'd reach out to a few of my friends that I have felt like I haven't uh, been in contact with for a little bit. And then I'll reach out to them and ask them what's up. Um, I also do travel quite a bit. Um, so my, the places I mainly travel uh, are China, Taiwan uh, and the New Zealand and the U.S. Yeah, mm-hmm. so my I guess my group of friends from I guess my whole lifetime are, are really situated in these four different countries. And whenever I do visit these places, I, I make it a point to to visit or to catch up with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because again, I think it's one of the most important things um, about about life in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it just it it's about. I think it's about learning being intentional with with friendships and relationships, whether they be business, whether they be personal. And I think, yeah, I mean, clearly you do do that very well, something that we can all take away. Great. So, look, I want to dive a bit more into you and your story, Nick. So, obviously, you're, you're Nick of the early years, you know, you're in Taiwan growing up, and then you, you moved to the US and, and moved around a little bit after that. But then you landed in New Zealand, and I saw yeah. you went to um, a un- university there. I think it was the University of, of Waikato in New yeah, Waikato. Waikato. Yeah, okay, I wasn't um, sure how you say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, talk to us a little bit about that transition there to kind of our side of the world. Yeah, so I think I had to start off with um, what my parents' wishes for me uh, for uni was. Mm. So they didn't want me to attend uni, university in Taiwan, mm. and they really felt like they wanted to send me uh, outside, you know, um, for university. But they also didn't want me to go to the, to the States. Mm. So I think back then when I was about 15 or so, they decided back then immigration to New Zealand was extremely uh, open, and they moved our whole family there for about a year, and we got uh, permanent residency there from just staying a year there. So the idea was always for me after high school to go to New Zealand or or Australia um, for university. Yeah. So that's how I ended up there, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I spent a year uh, at a, uh, in secondary school. I think that's what you call it here <laughs> or, or there. Um, yeah. When I was about fifteen or sixteen, and then I went back uh, when I was uh, for when I was eighteen. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what was what was that like for you that time there? So you, your whole family had moved. You just kind of 
things had really changed. You can imagine in that time you're used to being kind of US, yeah. Taiwan, and now you're like close to Oz and what's going, you know, what's yeah, happening? Yeah, it was um, one of the few times in my life where I actually felt culture shock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I was always used to that, you know, kind of like uh, Taiwan slash Asian and then the US type of culture, and especially when it came to the English. So mm. I remember when I first got uh, got to New Zealand, I was at the airport and some and one of the customs uh, officers asked me if I had something in my in my suitcase, and I think what she said was, you know, in memory, I think she what she asked for if I had any eggs in my uh, suitcase, and she just said it in a way that I couldn't understand. I was like, I'm sorry, I just have no idea what you're saying to me right now. I don't know if I have what it, what it is you're asking. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, as, as you get along, you, you do get used to it. It was quite different, though, I would mm-hmm. say. I guess the New Zealand says Australian culture and the, the way that uh, things work here um, compared to, I guess, the, the U.S. Mm. Yeah. Talk to us about some of those differences. Um, well, I think as a, as a child, uh, the number one thing is... Uh, uniforms in schools. Mm. Yeah, so that was um, very different for me. And then also the way that the people, I guess the people talked, um, and then the, it's it's almost a little bit hard to describe, but the culture um, that surrounds that kind of, you know, secondary school, and then even at at uni, it was was very different for me, though I would say it's hard for me to put into words, too. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 I I find that so interesting, and I think that, I mean, I did a little short stint in the UK, actually, the university there, and I felt that that was so similar to Oz. Hmm. But then I've heard, like, you know, the US or or elsewhere is, is very different, even at university, and how the people are and all that. And I've only been to New York once, but it's it's so interesting that that really does play a huge role, I think, when you start at a new place or you're trying to transition and understand a new culture. What do you think that transition period taught you about yourself? I think what it taught me about myself was, again, uh, my ability to, to adapt. Um, and I think, you know, personally, when I, when I move to a new place or when I uh, meet a new group of people, I'm always really on the, I'm not the one to, to speak up or to, um, I always like to observe and listen kind of first before I make my move, mm. I would say, yeah. And then it was the same thing when, you know, back when I went to New Zealand the first time and even Australia or, um, and Melbourne this time around, I always like to take my time, gather data almost a little bit and then try <laughs> to see. you gather on me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then try to see, you know, what, what the next best move would be. Um, though I guess one thing that I've learned throughout the years moving to so many different cities is um, in terms of the city itself, you always want to start going out to, you know, immediately going out all the time, different restaurants, different pubs, different bars, or, or even just doing anything that the city has to offer. Because I think through that, you really get to understand what the city is like, its environment, the community, the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. How do you think that ability to adapt and understand what cities are like and, and put yourself out there. How do you think that's helped shape what you're doing now with Honey? Oh, I think it, it definitely uh, shapes it quite, quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I think because of my ability to, or I guess the world, uh, my, my view of the world, my, my sense of the world is, I guess, a little bit bigger or larger than, than most people. Um, it allows me to see uh, how decisions would affect um, the effects of decisions would have on things from a from a larger and more uh, eagle-eyed perspective. Yeah, mm. so I'm able to you know not just uh, well, I'm very I'm 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 very often not narrow-minded. Mm. Yeah, this double negative there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I love it. And I think it, I think that in itself is just so important. I think that I think it's so many of us unintentionally because we're so busy with our daily lives, we've got, we've got our jobs, we've got our corporate careers, we've got our university studies, and we sometimes almost can just forget about that outside world, that there's more out there for Absolutely. us. Yeah. I think that that really plays a role in what we end up doing with our lives. And I think that it's just so cool to see how you've been able to almost break down all those barriers and think, you know what, I could pretty much do anything or do what I set my mind to. Exactly. So I love that. So I want to talk a bit about your your, your time in business. Mm-hmm. So you, I saw that you actually started, before you started, honey, like what you're running now, it was back in time when I think you started your first company, from what I could see, was a company called Moxie. Yeah. You talk, talk to me a little bit about that and how that came about when you were living in, in Taiwan. Yeah, so Moxie came about um, after... so. Uh, Taiwanese men have to serve at least one year of military service. It's uh, obligatory. So it's actually now now defunct. So yeah. now you don't have to. But anyone before, if you were born before the age of 93, I think oh, 1993, wow. you still have to serve one year. So during that one year, I was, uh, I guess, posted um, at a base where there wasn't really much uh, for me to do. Mm. Yeah. So what I had a lot of was time. So I would be at this, uh, at my guard post I would I was lucky to have a have a have a seat and I would just be reading pretty much the the entire time um, so I think it was during that one year where I really tried to or when I where I really explored and tried to find what I what it is I wanted to do mm. so just because growing up uh, up until that stage that was about when I was 20 21 yeah 21 I started serving yeah up until 21 I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do I think I wanted to be a PE teacher at one point um (laughs) I did almost go uh pro at badminton um but yeah I decided not to um so then it was during that one year I read a lot and I think at the end of it what I arrived was I didn't know I still didn't know what I wanted to do Mm -hmm. but what I did know was I didn't want to just be another cog in the machine I wanted to do something that I had control over where I felt like I had I could have impact um, where I felt like I had uh, control over my own my own destiny yeah and that's that's really where from that that kind of belief and thought um and faith in myself that's where uh, moxie evolved from really what moxie is it's um it's just a. Have you heard heard of a company called Threadless in the states? No, I haven't. No. So uh, the motto is extremely simple. So what you do is um, you have a community of of people, anyone really, and who go onto this website, uh, Threadless or Moxie. They have the exact same model, and you get to view different designs or art that is on T-shirts. Oh. Right. So anyone can go onto the to the website, design a design a T-shirt, and then the community would rate it. If it was rated high enough, then the company itself would then produce the T-shirt and then sell it, where the original designer gets a cut um, of the profits. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And your company was a, a play off that, or is it? It wasn't a play. It was oh. an exact replica ah. off of that. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so, yeah, there's the big, big story, a big yeah. idea here. Um, me and uh, another two of my friends, you know, who had kind of like they wanted to do their own thing. We looked around. We really liked Threadless. We, we, you know, uh, investigated into their model, thought that it worked, thought we could bring it to Taiwan. And, you know, and we did that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, e- my exact God, I model. Love it. Yeah. I love it. And this is why, I mean, so many of our peers out there listening might be thinking, oh, I just, I don't have that idea. You know, I want to do something different. I don't want to just be 
be one, you know, another one in the crowd, you know, but it's so funny that it's actually really got not much to do with the idea. And that's, you know, it's just obviously there needs to be a need for yep. what you've got. There needs to be a problem you're solving. But at the end of the day, they always say with a, the grass is greener where you water it, right? So it, it's just with your situation, it was let's build this, let's make this happen. Even if we've kind of stolen the idea, let's make it happen. I love that. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about firstly how that company went and then your transition back to Oz. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. to our part of the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we worked on that for about two years. I did at the beginning uh, start off with a like an account executive job at a, at a pretty big firm just because I needed um, a salary, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but about, I would say, six months in, we were making enough revenue that I could uh, leave that job. I still needed a little bit on the side, so I started teaching um, English in Taiwan, which is a very lucrative um, <laughs> type of uh, gig. Um, but then about two years in, we were doing well enough, um, and we were very lucky that one of the, one of the biggest, um, I would say, tech firms in Taiwan started up their own uh, department slash uh, company or subsidiary that did something very similar to us. So mm -hmm. it wasn't it wasn't community. There was no community aspect of it. But what they did was they hired freelancer um, or independent designer slash artist to create uh, designs for them, T-shirt designs for them, and then they produced it and on sold it. Right. Mm -hmm. So we were very lucky. They got into contact with us. We were able to to have a small, very small exit from it. Mm -hmm. But um, it gave us a you know a pretty good resume. Mm -hmm. um, you know it was good to have that early exit from a from a pretty young age. I, was, I would. I think we were about 23, 24. Yeah, and then from there, um, I wanted to... And then we... From there, we kind of went on to a, the next idea, but that didn't really take off. Um, I would say mostly because at that stage, I got a little bit disillusioned with the whole startup mm. scene, yeah, almost. Um, and then I decided from there, I went to, um, to Microsoft for a little bit and then came to... I went to New Zealand and then here. Mm. Yeah. Talk to me a bit about... That firstly, absolutely awesome that that got acquired. Absolutely mm. awesome. Um, but talk to me a little bit about that comment you made. You got a bit disillusioned by the startup saying, What did you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this may not, oh, this definitely wouldn't apply to everyone, but in, in in Asia, in Taiwan, China, um, maybe Japan slash Korea, if you're, you stand out absolutely if you know, if you're bilingual, right? Mm -hmm. If you, if you know English uh, and you know Chinese, you, you absolutely stand out. And within the startup or the tech startup scene in Taiwan, at least, basically every other person who was involved in that was someone who was bilingual, was someone who had almost the same background as, as I did, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe not the exact one, so, but there would be some sort of form of, um, you know, they were born in Taiwan or born in uh, the U.S. and they moved somewhere, moved around, came back, ended up in Taiwan, et cetera, wanted to get in startups. You know, this was back in 2000 and I would say 10, 2011. So it was right after that Facebook explosion, everyone was getting into it. Um, and I think at that stage, I just, you know, whenever I went to uh, events or everyone, whenever I spoke, spoke to someone, I just got this feeling where everyone I spoke to was exactly like me. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, in my own way, became another cog in that machine. Wow. Yeah, which is originally, you know, what I wanted to, to get away from. Yeah. Wow. And it's it's so funny how sometimes the thing we're running, the, we're running away from, it just can, like, slap us in the face, yeah. Yeah. you know? And I think that, I mean, I... I didn't have a similar experience to that, but in a way I can relate because I think for me it was when I realised I didn't want to take the corporate route and pursue my finance degree, um, 
I ran so far the other way that almost I hit a wall when I realised that for me to be able to build a sustainable business, there needed to be elements of working with corporations or even taking on board some of what they do in terms of structure, function, all of that jazz that you learn when you're at a big corporate. Yep, yep. And it's so funny that I've naturally, obviously, this has been a two-year journey. I had to almost just bring myself in, to be in the middle, so not on either side. And I think there's so much value in, in realising that. But at, at some at times we don't, we don't know unless we do it. Yeah, you know? absolutely not, yeah. So yeah. talk to me a little bit about what you did after that. You realised, oh, I'm just another number again. I don't want this. What did you do? Yeah, so I then had a chance. Um, so right after the the exit, I, I had a chance to uh, join Microsoft in Taiwan, kind of as a marketing specialist um, type person. And uh, so I went there thinking, you know, I'll, I'll try the you know the big corporate, um, you know, try and see see what that's like. You know, everyone says they hate it, but maybe I won't. Um, I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It wasn't too much of a surprise for me, actually. (laughs) So it was actually a pretty short stint there, I think about six months or Mm. so. And then I thought to myself, um, you know what, I I just want to get out of, you know, I've spent, uh, so that was about three years from after my service in Taiwan. And uh, at that point, I was three years, I'm getting a little bit antsy. (laughs) Gotta leave. Yeah, (laughs) I I, want to move, I want to get out of here. So then that's when I I looked around um, and I was looking at my options. And and so I ended up uh, back in New Zealand, Mm. right? So the last time I was in New Zealand since then for a longer period of time was about four years. So right after I graduated um, from uni, I I went back to Taiwan. Mm. So then four years later, I returned to to Auckland um, in New Zealand, yeah. And yeah, so that that's that's what got me there. Mm. Yeah, I love that. What did you do when you got there? So I I took my time a little bit. <laughs> so when I got there, I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. I didn't know if I wanted to get back into startups. I didn't know if I wanted to you know go to big por- corporate again or you know somewhere in the middle, just like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bid my time a little bit. Uh, I ended up working at uh, for a little bit at a at a company called uh, IINet. Um, they they got bought out by TPG oh. um, a few years back. Uh, yeah, they're one of they were one of the three big um, ISP in in New Zealand. So I, again, very short stint there, <laughs> and then I got contacted by a recruiter for a company called Zomato. Mm. Yeah, um, so. You've probably you've you've probably heard of Zomato <laughs> just because of your research, but yeah. but they're actually also a huge huge company, right? They're one of the the uh, most well known unicorns in, in India, and they they do food tech, right? Mm-hmm. So they had just opened up uh, an office in Auckland, and they were looking for people um, to help with their sales team there. So that that's where I went and uh, and joined them, mm-hmm. and for about that was at the end of my one year or so in New Zealand. And then I was there for about three months before they asked me to uh, move over to Australia mm. to lead the Australian expansion team mm. or to help lead it. Yeah. Wow. I think there's so much that comes from that. I think a question that's just going over in my mind is during that transition period or that period of not knowing what's next, you know, I think so many of us can get really caught up in that. I mean, I definitely know I did. You know, you think goodness, I've done so many, so much, so many years of studies or I've, I've, I've done this, I've invested in this and I still don't know what I want to do. Yeah. You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who are in this position, who haven't found their thing, who, you know, haven't made opportunities happen for themselves? What advice would you give? 
I think the number one piece of advice that would have helped me even even back then or even today actually is to is to put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. I know it's a it's, it's something that's pretty commonly said, but I think it's absolutely absolutely necessary. Um, you have to go out there, go to events, meet people, travel, and just put yourself out there and see what what comes back at you. Yeah, you, you absolutely have to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you don't, then you're just waiting for opportunities to come to you, and you know those. They, they don't happen. Mm. Yeah, they don't happen. It's so true. Yeah. I think it's so cool also how you were able to just dive into a company for three months and then the next minute you're help, helping to lead their expansion in Australia or whatever it is. How did you how did you make that happen? You know, was that you searching for opportunities or did that just come to you? I think it was a bit of both. Um, the first thing to know is as a motto back then, even probably today, is a very sales-focused company. Um, so they, you know, they have, they have, I think in Australia, they have about 1.8 million users per month. Yeah. A lot less in, uh, in New Zealand, but again, very, very sales focused. Right. Um, so they work with merchants, uh, in the hospitality sector for any, for a multitude of their products. So when I first joined, I joined as a key account, uh, key account, key account manager. Mm. Right. And, uh, I think within uh, the first I think for all three months um, after I joined, I was the top salesperson. Wow! Yeah, and I think um, so that got me a lot of um, a lot of stars. I would say within uh, the Auckland office and then with HQ and over in India, and when they needed someone to to help with that expansion in Australia, they they were they needed people from New Zealand because uh, Kiwis or New Zealanders have uh, don't need a don't have a problem with their visa to go to Australia, right? So then they mm-hmm. tapped on my shirt, and I was like, hey, yeah, I'll go over. Oh my goodness, I love that. I think that sales is something that's so underrated. You know, I think that, you know, so everyone wants to go out there and start something and do something cool, but they don't realize, I think, at least I didn't realize how important knowing how to sell yourself, sell what you're doing is in business, in life. You know, what are some key, some like top three sales tips you could give us today on the show? Um, Okay, number one, know your value proposition. Um, so a lot of people, when they're selling either themselves products, they don't really truly understand what their value proposition is, and that's one of the uh, most important things. Yeah. So number one, know your uh, yeah know your value proposition. Number two, know who you're speaking to. Mm. Yeah. So you know, just as you know, you would speak differently to your father or your parents than you would to a friend. It's the same thing. You have to know uh, who you're speaking to and basically revolve and customize your, your pitch, um, to that person. Um, and number three, be prepared. Yeah. Well, actually number three, uh, be prepared, uh, emotionally. Mm. Yeah. So in sales, it's a, it's a, it's a hard game. Right. Um, there's a lot of books out there um, that have to, to teach you about the numbers of resilience that you need to 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 be in it. Um, and you really have to be emotionally prepared, um, emotionally and pre- mentally prepared for the ups and downs. And there's there's a lot of downs. Yeah, there's a lot of downs, as, as I'm sure you know, too. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about your biggest down. My biggest down sales wise or just in. Let's just do life. Let's just do life. Your journey so far. Uh, I think my the biggest down would be uh, when we realized that our initial model at at Honey was was unsuccessful. Mm. Yeah. So at Honey, our initial uh, hypothesis almost, or what we raised on that first seed round, was that we could build a discovery and bookings 
platform for the beauty and wellness industry uh, and then charge merchants an advertising fee to show up on our platform or to have standout advertisement or standout space on our platform. And we, we operated under that, that model for about a year. And yeah, it was uh, near the end of that year when we realized, hey, this isn't working. We've just burned through you know, 90% of our money and we're going to have to shut this whole thing down and call it quits if we can't do something about it immediately. Yeah, and yeah, it was that, that realization is like, hey, uh, past year of work, all useless. Oh. Yeah. What do you do when you hit that low and you realize something like you did? You know, how do you get yourself back up? Yeah, well, I think the first thing uh, that I need to do or that people need to do in general is to, is to grieve, mm. really. Yeah, I think that's a really important part of the process. I remember, and so it's happened a few times at, at, at Honey, actually. So that, that's not just the only time. But I think every time, um, I think the most recent time, I remember, we would, uh, me and my co-founder, we were you know, at, a, at a burger restaurant. And we, when we got the news that led to the big, um, the big down, we were just, you know, hitting our heads on the table for, for a good hour, I would say. Yeah. Um, but that really helped us. That really helped um, uh, the news sink in, mm. right? And I think you need that, that little space of time, right? You know, don't, don't dwell on it um, to, to let it sink in. Yeah. And then beyond that, then it's about picking up those pieces, you know, um, doing an audit of what resources you have, what you can still work slash play with, and then seeing what you can build from that. But I think that second step is really, you can only do that after that first step. Mm. Yeah. What do you think the importance of actually feeling it allows you to do? You know, I think, I think just, I so agree with what you're saying there around the grieving part, because I think that so many of us just want to skip that and go to great, what's the solution? You know, what's next? And I think that by skipping that and not actually appreciating what's happened, it will come back to you at some point. And maybe you actually repeat that mistake again or you do something. You know, what, how do you think that allowing yourself to grieve has allowed you to progress in, at Honey? Yeah, well, I think you've, you've already hit it straight mm-hmm. on. Yeah, like you, if without doing that, you can't appreciate it and you probably will, you know, um, make those same mistakes again. I'm, I'm a big believer in... Um, uh, in, a, in a Chinese saying, which I won't repeat here, but basically no, this... Um, <laughs> uh, um, so basically what it, what it means is like, um, it, it, you, to, to understand what, what sweet tastes like, you need to know what, what sour tastes like. Yeah. Um, and I think that, just, that doesn't apply to just business, but in, but in life. So you can't really uh, truly appreciate your, your ups if you don't understand what, what your downs are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think to, to be, uh, as a part of life, the downs are... Um, are something you should uh, almost savor sometimes. Mm. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I think that so many of us have this stigma towards, and myself included, I used to, have the stigma towards failure or heart, really like hardship or the downs that we're talking about. And I think that... that I always say that on the br- success happens on the brink of failure. And so if we're not able to actually embrace failure and go, you know what, let's do it, you know, all well if we fail, let's keep going, then how are we actually supposed to act- achieve? Um, so I really resonate with what you're saying there. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about Honey, a bit more about Honey. So I know we kind of fell into that discussion there, which I love. Um, so 
obviously you guys have have grown so much over the last, I think it's three and a bit years. Yeah. Um, you're in, you've got, I think it's 100,000 um, suppliers or uh, um companies on your website that people could use and go to, which is absolutely huge. Now, talk to me a bit about um, your progression yeah, with yeah, Honey. Yeah. So I just want to um, clarify something really quickly there. So we don't have 100,000, uh, I would say, merchants mm. uh, on the site. We have about, so between Melbourne and Sydney, about 10,000. Oh, yeah. So we have okay. about 100,000, uh, I would say, monthly active users. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I read. Yeah. Love yeah. it. <laughs> um, so sorry, uh, what was your question, Nick? Yeah, no, you're right. The question was, you know, talk to us a bit about your progression yeah. from Honey. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just like I mentioned earlier, our initial business model, um, our revenue model was based upon advertising space. So selling parts of uh, the the real estate on the website um, and to, to merchants and l- allowing them to put up a banner banner ads digital banner ads to entice customers to track gain exposure etc um, and we worked on that model for about a year so it was based upon um, getting traffic organic or um, organic traffic to the website making sure that there was enough traffic coming over here and then kind of funneling them over into the, the individual company profiles or listings of the merchants right so the the problem that we had there was um, at Zomato. Uh, so at Zomato, we had about, well, they had about one point, one, yeah, I think again, one point two, one point two million users um, wow. per month, and they were charging, um, you know, let's say an X amount per month for to their merchants, and we were charging the same amount, right? But we had one tenth of the users, mm. right? So we just couldn't provide our clients, our merchants, with the with the ROI that they needed. Mm. Yeah. And that was really where, where the downfall came from. So that was about, I would say, close to uh, a year in. Mm. And uh, by that time, we, so the, we started off in the uh, Melbourne Accelerator Program, um, which is an incubator slash accelerator program um, hosted by the University of Melbourne. So that's that's a great program, you know, for anyone listening. Um, you should check them out. They do intakes every year. <laughs> kind of plug in for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you later. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then after that, we went from there to another program um, hosted by a VC company called Blackbird, mm. which is, I would say, probably, uh, you know, one of the top most three well-known um, VC companies in Australia. They're based in Sydney. Mm-hmm. So they have an a incubator slash seller program called uh, Startmate. Yeah. So we went through Startmate in 20, 2015, 2016-ish. Yeah. yeah. I think we were part of the 2016 cohort. Yeah. And it was through. It was actually during our time at Startmate where we realized that that model didn't really, really work anymore and we really needed to change it up and really get another round of funding in mm-hmm. to, to far, far, far pivot. Mm-hmm. And then we were able to to work with Blackbird um, on that and they actually ended up funding us um, again. Well, yeah, for that, uh, for that, I would call it a, a seed round B. Mm. Yeah, so we raised, raised fi- about 500 in our, for our seed round A, which went into the first year, which we pivoted from, and then Blackbird gave us another round of seed round B um, mm. for what we eventually do- uh, started up doing, mm. Yeah, um, which I'll get into now. And that's, uh, so we started uh, looking at the opportunity, and one thing that we really realized after being in the, in the industry for about a year is that all of our merchants really talked to us about 
um, two problems. So they have one problem on the new new customer side, so new customer acquisition, and they would have a problem with the retention side, mm-hmm. right? So while there were a lot of tools out there already for new customer acquisition, there weren't really any tools that were helping them on the client on the uh, client retention on the existing customer retention, mm-hmm. and that was something that they kept telling us they needed help with. So we said, okay, yeah, well, let's help out with them. So we decided to build a end-to-end salon management software for them, which really helps them out with every single aspect of their business from uh, staff staffing, calen- uh, calendar management, scheduling uh, management, inventory, uh, payments, uh, really anything. Yeah. And that's what we worked on for about, uh, I would say, also a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And how's that? How's that progressing for you? How's that going? It, it didn't progress. Oh, it didn't yeah. progress, right? <laughs> so that's the. You never know. Yeah, you know that's, the, that's the second failure. That's the second failure. Yeah, Got that's it. the second big down. Yep. So, um, yeah. Well, we ended up. Uh, what happened was about a, a year and a half, and we had uh, actually uh, close to two hundred clients at one point. Wow. And then, so we were doing pretty well, yeah. um, and we were reached out to by a a company in in Japan. Which um, I, I can't say who it was, but it was a a big company who played in the space. Mm. Right, they own a a huge asset in in the UK. Let's put it that way. Mm. Yeah, and um, so we spoke to them. They were talking. We were in talks about um, either an, an initial strategic investment from them, with the purview that down the line they would uh, potentially acquire us. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, that when we spoke to them, we flew over to Japan a few times um, to try to close that deal. And that, and that, when we heard, we actually got a final decision from them in December, no, no, no. Uh, October, September, October last year. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and, the, and the answer that came back was, was uh, sorry, we're going to pass. Oh. Yeah. And that was when we Jeez. were in the re- uh, the burger, the hamburger restaurant, and we were smashing our heads on the table. Oh, yeah. I would have been too. I'd have been yeah. right there with you. Yeah. So how do you like? I just, and this is what I think I want to put emphasis on, especially in today's episode. It's a, it's around. I think when people see, you know, obviously you're Forbes thirty under thirty. You've absolutely killed it. You know, in what you've done, you've transitioned across the world. You've built companies, but it's just around the failures. You know, I don't think people. I mean, definitely, I was blindsided when I when I started out in business. That you kind of look at hashtag successful entrepreneurs and you think, oh my goodness, like they've had no struggles and yeah. it's all been smooth sailing and look at them now, now they're on the Forbes list and it's just like, no, you know? And so I think this is so valuable to, to hear about these pivotal moments where, you know, you spent a year building this and then nah, that didn't work. Yeah. You know, talk to us a little bit about that second downfall and how you kind of came back from that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when, when we got that decision from this company, we, you know, we, you know, we, we grieved for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then what we did immediately was, was we hit them back up and we asked them um, to meet us again and really drill down into, into the why, why they passed, right? <laughs> and then so we did that. Uh, you know, we did, we did an audit of, of what we had left. At, at that time, we didn't have too much money left, right? Um, we still had enough revenue to, for opera, operations and everything, but there wasn't enough money to do a big uh, a growth, growth stage again. Yeah. So... And the the overall general um, reason that they passed was the the system that we had built. It's called it's called Honeycomb. Mm. Um, oh my gosh. Well, Love it. Yeah, everything was on theme. Uh, <laughs> Honeycomb was two. 
uh, too complicated. Mm. Yeah, there was too many functions in it, too many things that too many things uh, that people had to or clients had to learn, and it was just too too clunky overall. Mm. I would say. So then we thought to ourselves, okay, well. We looked at why we had so many clients in a relatively short span of time, and we realized that they were all really buying it for one single aspect of the honeycomb system. Yeah, and that's what we decided. That's when we decided, hey, we can. What we can do next is, we can pull out the single, almost a single feature um, mm-hmm. of honeycomb. Right, pull it out, expand on it, develop it a little bit more. And just sell that. Bingo. Yeah, and uh, that's what we ended up doing. So the new the new uh, software is is called Haiku, um, for the Japanese poem. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, what it does it's a it's a it's a retention software. Yeah, mm. so it's pretty simple. Uh, whereas before we were a a salon management software, mm. Haiku can now actually integrate with almost every single other. Uh, salon management software out there in the world, and there's hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. So we can integrate directly into hundreds of uh, these other software that businesses are already using, leverage their their database, and then analyze it, and then help them via multiple channels. Uh, but being SMS or text messaging being the main the main channel, bring customers that they've lost or aren't returning or haven't returned as often back into their business. Mm. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's that's what they love. That's what they needed. Mm. And since then we to put it into perspective of how how we've gone, we signed about 200 clients for Honeycomb uh, throughout the year. Throughout a year and a half, I would mm. say. With Haiku, we signed uh, 200 in about 3 months. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it's just I love that point. That's so- that iteration and figuring out why it is that you didn't get that opportunity or why it is that that didn't go the way you thought. I think so many of us at times can just be a little bit too timid and just be like, oh, that's a huge company. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to, I'm a no one. I'm just going to go the other way. But I think I love the fact that you guys pushed on and was like, you know, we're like, no, we're going to figure this out. And now look where you are. I think it's absolutely awesome Nick and I feel like we could I want to just keep hearing everything about this but unfortunately time is running out and so you know I just want to take a moment before we come to the close of today's episode to just acknowledge you Nick for the brilliant work you've done and that you're doing for you know your ability to constantly tackle challenges and to just adapt and to to make it work even when it doesn't look like it can. And I think there's just so so much that our peers out there listening could take from our conversation today around that resilience, around that ability to get up when you fall. And for that, we we really appreciate and acknowledge you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Of course. Great. So now we're going to head, head to the close of today's episode, and I'm going to ask you a question that we ask at the end of every single episode. Yeah. And it is, what is the value of doing what you're most passionate about? It's the reason why I can get up every day and then go back home and still have something to talk to uh, my wife about mm-hmm. and, uh, and my three-year-old daughter. Yeah, that, that's really what it is. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it, Nick. This has been so much fun. I cannot wait for everyone to listening to this episode and to hear your journey. Where can people learn more about you and Honey? Well, I think if uh, they just visit, um, you know, our website, honey.com.au, uh, you can find out there's 
you can find a lot about us. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of media about us too. And also, I'm always up for um, new connections from anyone. I'm I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, so yeah, hit me up there. I would always uh, be ready to to you know message you back or, or anything like that. Oh, we love it. Thanks so much, Nick. This has been a blast. And for all our peers out there listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.